Psalm 99. Some poetic devices that you might notice here. Uh, look, we'll just start in verse 1 and then go on down. Verse 1, any poetic devices, figures of speech? Okay. Uh, I was debating with this one. How many of you think it's personification? It's like a person who's afraid and trembling. Okay, that's kind of what I was leaning toward, but it could also be an earthquake, which would be an actual event, and then it might be less of a figure of speech and more just like one thing referring to another. Paul? The first part of it talks about people Yeah. Yeah. So, well, two separate things, but I think he's drawing a comparison between the people trembling and the earth trembling, like all of it together is trembling in reverence before God, something like that. Yeah, yeah, good. Um, when it says... In verse 2, what do we see any, any things here in verse 2? Okay. Yeah. So it's not as though God is actually being lifted up. Um, it's at a wedding maybe a week and a half ago, and they were being funny, and they all got under the bride and the groom and lifted them up in there, right? God's not having anyone actually exalting him, like lifting him up physically, right? But it's just a picture of the uh, thing. What's that? Right, that he is above all these things, right? Okay, good. How about verse 3? Yeah, I was trying to think if that is a um, figure of speech. Or okay, yeah, so the name referring, yeah, the name as a representation of God, yeah. Okay, good, good, yeah. Uh, how about verse 4? Well, I just caught it. It's saying the strength of the king loves justice, but I mean it's the strength is loving justice, which is kind of an odd term. <laughs> yeah, there are apparently versions or like it could be one of the... Go ahead, Norma. Uh, wait. Yeah, it actually said that those were the foundation of his throne in another one of these. That's why I'm pausing for a second. Was that, which one was that last week's? Was that? Well, no, there, one of the psalms that we've looked at in the last few weeks says just what Norma said, that it's the foundation of his throne. You think it was in 98? Okay. Yeah, so there's this idea that, um, that he's accomplishing these things. But that thing that Jonathan was pointing out, the strength of the king loves justice is, you know, what is his strength? And in what sense does it mean that he loves justice? So what I was trying to get at, go ahead. Um, yeah, there's a, there was one of the translations that I was looking at rendered it as something like the king who is strong loves justice, like that sort of sense. You don't think so? Okay, so what? So what do you think the strength of the king is? Well, his righteousness is, uh, what we just talked about, equity. 
Right, but in what sense is that the strength of the king? That's the part I'm trying to understand. James? Are talking about King David? Well, the... I think it's talking about God in heaven as being the king, but still... Yeah, what did you say, Paul? Uh, I think most people would see these psalms... Well, like Psalm 101 is a psalm of David, but I think these ascension psalms, I think most people would see as coming a little bit later. That's where I think. That's where I think the the one translation was going with it. That God possesses strength, which means when it says the strength of the king loves justice, ultimately it's referring back to God Himself. That's what I was trying to say a minute ago. Mike, what were you going to say? Um, I just noticed got a little thing for that particular word justice. It says or judgment. Like it, it could be interpreted or judgment. Right, and that's. Okay, how so? Well, because it, it, it's, he loves his judgment, he loves his ruling and stuff. Right, but I think the thing that we're finding strange is to refer to the strength, his strength loving it. It'd be like, I don't know, it'd be like saying Jared's handsomeness loves cheeseburgers. Nobody buys that. <laughs> I don't know. Or, or, uh, or, um, I, or like, you know, <laughs> oh man, yeah, now we're going to pick on Paul, Paul, now we're going to pick on Paul, let's see, what can we say, well, we could, we could do this, we could say, um, Paul's hair loves washing, or something like that, right? It's a, it's a weird thing to say, right? It's a strange phrase. So that's the point that we're getting at. But here's the main point, I think, that at the end of the day, if we take it as parallel to the next two phrases, the strength of the king loves justice, you have established equity, what are we saying? Other than being too loud for them because they just shut the door. Uh, we're saying ultimately it has reference to God, Right? So we need to think about a little bit more how it refers to God, but the parallelism would say it has reference to God. So who's the king? God. What does it mean for his strength to love justice? Perhaps something along the lines of that he shows his strength through justice, and it's just kind of a picturesque way of saying it. It's something I think bears more consideration. All right, moving on to the next verse. Uh, without reference to features that will provoke uh, conflict between people. No. <laughs> Any, any figures of speech here in number five or verse five? Okay, worship at his footstool. What is God's footstool? Yeah, more specifically. Well, so his throne we might think of. Okay, you said the Ark of the Covenant is another option. I, where was the Ark of the Covenant supposed to be located? Jerusalem or the temple. I think it's saying, you know, there's that other verse that says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. And then there's this sense in which we zoom in, the seat, not the seat, but the, the focus of God's presence on earth was supposed to be in Zion, Jerusalem, the temple, that sort of thing. Maybe even as specifically as the Ark of the Covenant too. But um, so I, 
where were his people supposed to worship him? If we correlate that with the rest of Scripture, I think we'd say something like the temple or Jerusalem, something like that. Um, but here's the funny thing as we consider this. Um, It's perhaps not a perfect parallel, but it's kind of like if somebody said, hey, you left your socks on the floor. Go show reverence to the pile of socks on the floor. Like, we'd be like, that's silly. There's nothing important or special about that. But what was the attitude of the Israelites toward the temple? How majestic is it? We love it. It's so wonderful. It's the best thing ever. And to God, A, he doesn't need it, and B, this verse is describing as his footstool. I just find a fascinating picture. Yes. Okay. Of recognizing that God is exalted, so we need to be humble, that kind of idea? Yeah, I think that. Yeah. I think it is, and I think that's part of what I was trying to get at when I say this idea of footstool. We're actually worshiping God. And I think there was this point at which God's people lost that aspect of we're humbling ourselves before God, and they're just more like, well, we're God's people, so God kind of has to come to us. Yes? Yeah, I was thinking that um, as Jesus said the parable about not trying to brush and take the seat of honor, mm. but take the lesser seat. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it's a position of learning too. You look at like Mary or whoever. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Right. Jim. I, I agree with that exactly because we're supposed to have a servant's heart. Right. And that's where the servant would be before the Lord. Uh, yeah. And specifically when it comes to worship, there's an attitude of reverence, I think, that there is a relationship, obviously, right? But. Uh, I think we need to be really careful about an attitude that would say, oh, hey, God's the man upstairs, or Jesus is my wingman, or this sort of way of talking about God, right? Can there be a familial connection? Yes, but not an excessive familiarity, right? So, um, I mean, I don't know. And, and this is going to vary from family to family, right? So I don't know how you talked to your parents growing up, but there was a way of talking to them that they were good with and a way of talking to them that would get sent you off to the other room, right? I think that's something to keep in mind here, connection with worshiping before God. So, uh, okay, next verse, verse 6. Any poetic phrases here in verse 6? Yeah. So I think calling his name refers to what? Prayer. prayer okay. So it's a, it's a phrase that references prayer. And then verse 7. Uh, 
Yeah, and this is less like a, this is a picture, but it's not a simile or a metaphor or anything like that. It's just more of a historical illusion because God actually led them as a pillar of cloud. And I was trying to find the chapter in Exodus. I think it's 12 or 13, somewhere around there. Um, God leads them, speaks to them uh, as a visible representation of his presence, even though he didn't have a, a, a body or a form per se. Right. Well, I think... Yeah, he revealed his presence to them, and perhaps that's the thing. I, yeah, I hear what you're saying. What about um, verse 9? Yeah, worship at his holy hill. So again, where is his holy hill? His footstool, Jerusalem, temple, all that, right? Okay. Which then brings up all of the allusions to uh, who is able to do that. We'll come back to that in a minute. What are some repeated thoughts that we see here? Okay, let's start. So worship God. We see that in 5 and 9. So exalt him, worship him in verse 5 and verse 9. He's holy. We see that in 3, 5, and 9. Repeated three times. Okay, powerful. So enthroned, great, exalted, awesome. We see that in 1. I think we also see it in 2 and 3, that he's exalted and awesome, right? Okay, 4, strength, yeah. Okay, reverence, yeah. So exalt and worship, I think, are tied into that idea of reverence. It's connected with his holiness. His, the fact that he's enthroned, and then um, there's this sort of call and answer kind of language we see, I think, in 6, 7, and 8. An attitude of humility. Uh-huh. Good. Good. So we'll, we'll come back to that in Truths About Us. What type is this? Praise. Praise. Mm-hmm. We talked about these being, this is the last of these so-called kingship psalms that a lot of people would consider to be. Truths about God, and then we'll get to truths about us. Truths about God. First one. What's true? What's that? It is, but what's, what's the one in verse 1? God reigns, okay? The Lord reigns, all right? And then in verse 2 and 3, he's great, he's exalted, all those sorts of things, okay? And then if we were to put it a little bit, maybe not quite as straightforward, but hopefully still fairly obvious, what do we see in verses 6 through 8 is true about God? When people pray, God, God answers prayer. Okay? There's more things that we could say about God, but I think those are some of the, the main things. There's things that we've seen in previous psalms like this about the idea of justice and God accomplishing those things. Holy. Okay? Good. What about truths about us? If God is exalted, if God reigns, what are we supposed to do? Yeah, holy fear of God and worship Him. That holy fear of God should characterize our worship of Him if we're going to link those together. Should we pray? I think we should pray because if Moses and Aaron prayed and God answered them, if God hears and answers prayer, then we should see that as a pattern that, we sh that would continue with us as well. Worship him, too. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, we should praise him. I think the specific attitude here is a praise in terms of a recognizing his position, a worship more broadly. 
Uh, last week it was very specific. Sing, play instruments is how you respond to God. Here it's worship with a posture of humility, something along those lines. So, good. What's that? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, let's bring these things together. So, I said, I think the main point of this is that you and I should exalt our holy king, who is great and faithful. So, exalt God, first of all, verses 1 through 5, for his greatness in position and in righteousness. So, God is enthroned as the exalted king above the angels. So, when it says he is enthroned above the cherubim, um, and the Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. There's this idea that God is exalted above the people of the earth, and God is exalted above even the cherubim, who were, in some respects, I think, perhaps seen as the highest of the angelic beings. And so, if God is exalted above them, then certainly we should uh, recognize that God is high and lifted up, which I think calls to mind um, Isaiah 6, that familiar passage where it says, God's high and lifted up in His holy temple and in His holiness is sort of visible in this cloud that fills the entire temple. And so, God is enthroned as the exalted king even above the angels. And then secondly, in verse 2, God is enthroned as the exalted king above all people, which parallels the first phrase of verse 1. So, if God is above the angels and He is above all the people, and if people and angels are seen as being above the animals, then basically what we're saying is God is exalted over everything that exists that is made, right? Conclusion, then, verse 3, praise his name, for he is holy. Not just a name that is mediocre or insignificant, but a great and awesome name. Now, the problem with the word like awesome is that we've kind of made it um, kind of blah, right? That guy just did this thing on a skateboard. That was awesome, right? And that's not what people would actually say. I recognize that. So, but... We use it for trivial things like that, is my point. Whereas the idea of it it is is, is to be full of awe, reverence, respect, pause, attitude of humility towards something that provoked that response. And so what we should think of when we see something like this is less, wow, he scored that unexpected goal in soccer. That was awesome. And more you see a torrential downpour followed by the most amazing sunset you've ever witnessed. That points to God's power as creator that he rules over all. That's more the picture here, I think. So, God's enthroned as the exalted king above angels and above people, so praise his name because holy is he. Then, God is just among his people. Not just like he's just among his people, but he shows justice among his people. So, verse 4, where it says, The strength of the king loves justice or judgment. You've established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Behind all of the kings and judges in Israel was supposed to be God's law and God's character as the driving motivation for them to rule well, judge well, teach the people who, what God is like. And so we see an example of this, uh, Moses with his father-in-law Jethro in Exodus 18. Uh, there's a division of it so that the justice is accomplished because Moses was just wearing himself out. And, and his father-in-law said, you need to divide up this task and then sort of you be kind of like the Supreme Court and let all the lower courts handle the minor stuff so that justice is actually accomplished. Because if you are handling every last dispute for hundreds if not thousands of people, 
you're just going to wear yourself out and it's never going to get be accomplished. Or um, you see examples of people perverting justice. So David got a little bit out of touch with the people and his son Absalom sort of sat at the city gate and was like, hey, hey, my father doesn't really care about you, but I'll help you out. Tell me what's wrong and I'll fix it for you. There's perversions of justice. There's severe perversions of justice that aren't just designed toward usurping someone's position, but are actually like, forget about justice altogether. We're going to go our own way. We saw a lot of that in Isaiah. There's people who are supposed to be leading the Israelites and the people of Judah, and their response was, eh, we'd rather be drunk than decide cases for people, or we'd rather take a bribe, and whoever can give us the most money, they'll get justice. Everybody else, forget about you. And that's what tends to happen in most systems of government. But in contrast to that, God loves justice. He's established it, and he's carried it out. We see that here. We saw it previously in Israel's history. We see it even in the end times when it says Jesus will come to rule the nations with a rod of iron and accomplish justice, and, and the wicked will not be allowed to stand in the land. So what's the response to the fact that God is just among his people? Worship and exalt him because he is holy. Again, this attitude of humility. Paul points this out in Acts 17, which I was just looking at earlier today. God does not dwell in temples made with hands as though he himself needed anything. Hey, Israelites, you know that temple that uh, in Jesus' day was going to ta have taken them like 70 years to build, decades to build, and even in Solomon's time took them a long time to build, great and majestic, and you see this as a sign that God has given you favor? It's kind of like God's spot where he rests his muddy boots. That puts it in a different light, right? Can it be glorious? Yes, but it's glorious not because it's the temple, but because of the God whose temple it is. We can have the same attitude toward uh, the place where we gather. Now, is it possible for us to not take care of it, let it get run down and need to do some work on it? Yes. I just think of the attitude when I was a little kid. It's like, this is the auditorium. It's like God's house. Don't run in it. Don't mistreat it. Don't do bad things to it. Now, there's a point of teaching kids a proper attitude for coming before God that is hard to disconnect from the place where we worship God, right? But at the same time, this room is not special because it's the place where we've chosen to meet. This room is only special to the degree that God is with us. God can be with us here. God can be with us in a field. God can be with us at home. It is the gathering of God's people and his presence in and among them that is the important thing because in Ephesians and Colossians and all these other places, 1 Corinthians, God basically says, you collectively, individually, and distributively are the temple of God. In other words, God dwells within you and among you and together with you as opposed to the emphasis being on the building like it was in the Old Testament. And so, if we have too high a focus on the building or on ourselves as being the objects of God's divine favor, that lends itself to pride instead of a proper attitude of humility. When it says worship at his footstool, it sort of puts that and us in our proper place. You're coming to God's feet not standing as an equal to him, not looking down on him, being, hey, God, do what I want you to do or else, right? And that's the posture that it's easy for us to take because we forget God is here 
and I'm here, right? So when it says worship at his footstool, it sort of reorients our attitude in worship. So exalt God for his greatness in position and in righteousness or justice. And then exalt God for his faithfulness in answering prayer. We see that in verses 6 through 9. Moses and Aaron are among his priests. Samuel called upon his name. They called upon the Lord and he answered them. It's interesting they picked Samuel because we know that later on in life, what was the problem? Samuel's sons didn't really respect God or honor him. So Samuel was not perfect. But that's not what the psalmist is focused on here. He's not focused on, were Moses and Aaron perfect? Absolutely not. Aaron makes the golden calf. Moses hits the rock when he's angry. Samuel's sons don't follow after God, and so that leads to the people asking for a king. But he's not focusing on their flaws. He's focusing on what they did right, which was they called upon the Lord. They prayed to God, and what did God then do? God answered them. God spoke to them. I think the them is primarily Moses and Aaron in the pillar of cloud. And then they kept his testimonies and his statutes. Samuel himself did this. Now, why his sons didn't is a whole other topic. But Samuel himself kept God's testimonies and statutes. Moses and Aaron heard from God in the pillar of cloud. They called upon the Lord and he answered them. Now, God answered them how? Verse 8, with forgiveness and with discipline. And this, I think, highlights one of the things we talked about in Isaiah a few weeks ago. God shows forth mercy and God also pours out discipline. And so, to the extent that we are in a right position before God, um, we can call upon him expectantly and hopefully and with confidence, or we can call upon God and then sort of have this pause and say, what did I do? For the person who comes before God irreverently or carelessly, the scary thing is not if it looks like God doesn't answer, it's if God actually does, right? Because if the God who made the world actually responds to the person who's taken his name in vain, that's a reason to be a bit worried, in fact, terrified, right? Because here's the God who made the universe shows up, right? This is the thing I think people don't realize um, when they, when they play around with the occult and demonic things and all of that, it's not scary if you don't get a response, right? It's terrifying if you do. And to the extent that a demon is terrifying because it's powerful, think about the God who made all the angels who became corrupted in demons and how much greater God is. We should be sure that we are ready to come before God when we come before God. And this is the point when we observe the Lord's table of saying, examine yourselves, deal with sin, deal with things between you and another person, do it in a worthy way, because every time we come before God's presence in worship, if God actually shows up and we trust and hope that he does, because there's a sense in which he is already there, but to the extent that we are aware of God's presence, we should come before him with care and having dealt with our sin. It says in 1 Timothy 2, uh, I want men everywhere lifting up holy hands in prayer and then list off a whole bunch of things to pray for. Sometimes we get stuck on the lifting up holy hands part and we don't think about the fact that it's holy, right? So are you dealing with sin? Is your heart right before God? Can you actually come before God and worship 
or are you caught up in the emotion of the moment, in the sound of the music, in a particular feeling that you cultivate because you think it's the right thing to have? We should be equally, if not more, concerned about preparing our hearts before we get to that point as we are about how we feel when we are in the act of worship, whether it be contemplating God's word, spending time in prayer, singing praise to God, giving in various ways, all of that. So God answers with forgiveness and with discipline. So God gave forgiveness to the people of Israel over and over again, and to Moses and Aaron and Samuel when they sinned. And we can seek that same forgiveness from God. So we should praise or exalt God in, for his faithfulness in answering prayer. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy hill, for holy is the Lord our God. This idea of holy hill comes up several times in the book of Psalms. Um, I think Psalm 15 is the one that comes to mind. Who can come to your tent and dwell on your holy hill? He who walks with integrity, works righteousness, speaks truth in his heart. He does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. In whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord? He swears to his own hurt and does not change. He does not put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be shaken. It would be possible for us to have the attitude, well, God's holy and I'm not, so I just won't go before him and then I won't be in trouble. But this passage and Psalm 15 are not calling us to mediocrity and saying, well, I have a problem, I don't want to deal with it, so I'll avoid it. It's, I'm a sinner and I need to come before God humbly and seek to rise to what he calls me to be, and by his grace then I can worship him properly. And so we are to exalt our holy king who is great and faithful. Do it with a proper attitude and with proper preparation, and then God will be honored because he deserves all praise.